I'm going to invite you either to take your Bibles out or to bring your attention to the screen as we open God's Word together this morning. We just started at the beginning of this month a series on discovering God's will and doing that together. And so we're skipping around a little bit in the Old and uh, in the New Testament. And this morning we're in John chapter 17. John chapter 17. This is uh, Jesus' last prayer before he went to the cross. So that puts it in a little context for us. It's his last recorded prayer in the scriptures. And we're going to pick it up at the sixth verse of that 17th chapter. And Jesus says, I have revealed to you, to those whom you gave me out of the world, they were yours, Father. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And the glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as you are one. And then jump down with me to the 20th verse. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. When the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. And to see my glory, the glory that you have given me because you love me because the, from before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Max Lucado tells the story of three blind men. Three men born blind and then healed by Jesus. You see, they heard about each other and they decided that they should probably get together and share the stories and, and celebrate. And so they came together, they introduced themselves and then they exchanged warm embraces. Bartimaeus, from Mark 10 started. I can hardly wait to tell you what Jesus did for me. I was outside of Jericho when Jesus and this mob of people walked by. I cried out, Son of David, Son of David, have mercy on me. And 
Jesus stopped. The crowd went quiet. And then he asked me this strange question. He said, what do you want me to do for you? I said, teacher, I want to see. And he said, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Men, in that instant, I could see. So this is the way it is. When it comes to healing blind men, Jesus uses our faith and he uses his words. And together, they bring healing. The man from Bethsaida shook his head. <laughs> That's not the way it happened with me, he said. Jesus took me out of the city and he spit directly into my eyes. He touched my eyes with his hands. And I was expecting an instant healing like, like you had experienced, Bartimaeus. But when I opened my eyes, <laughs> I would have rather been blind. It was awful. I saw men as trees walking. I thought, if this is what it's like to be healed by Jesus, <laughs> I don't really need it. But then Jesus repeated the procedure. He spit my eyes and he touched me again. And the second time, my eyes were opened, and I could see clearly. So I'm absolutely convinced that Jesus heals blind men with spit, and it's always in two stages. The third man, well, by now he was quite irritated. He says, men, I seriously doubt the validity of your healings. Jesus uses saliva all right, but he doesn't spit in your face. He spits on the ground. He uses the wet dirt and he makes mud out of it. And he places a pack of it in your eyes, just like he did with me. And then he told me to go wash off the mud in the, in the pool of Siloam. And when I washed it out, I could see instantly. Jesus heals blind men. Yes, he does. But when he does it, he always uses mud and the, and the clean waters of the pool of Siloam. Well, needless to say, this little gathering didn't last all that long. Forgetting how Jesus had graciously and miraculously returned their sight, these three blind men, once blind men, walked away, irritated at each other. Jesus heals blind men. Not always the same way. It irritated them. Because they were always focusing on their own experience, on their own perspective, and on their own understanding of the truth. As a result, three distinct denominations were formed. There were the Wordites. The Wordites said only Christ's word and their faith were important in being able to see. There were the Spittites. The Spittites believed that all healings involved saliva and had to be done in two key phases. And then there were the Muddites. The Muddites said it was mud, along with water from the pool of Siloam, that brought healing and miracles to life. Now, the truth is, these stories are apocryphal. But the truth and the reality behind them are not. You see, the bond of unity in the body of Christ is easily 
and it's frequently broken and usually over seemingly very minor things. Someone once said, the seeds of division don't need to be planted in the church. They are hardy perennials. And that is all too sadly true. Christian community has been overpromised in the church and underdelivered. Even the term community has been compromised and misunderstood in our day. Today, community has come to mean a warm, fuzzy experience or an affinity group or fellowship time before and after a worship service or eating together or when our commonalities and our similarities are in sync together. And today, people step in and out of community just like they step in and out of a store or a restaurant. We think community is about us. It's for us. And it's about what we want. And the truth is, Jesus defines community. The truth is, Jesus chooses his community. And the truth is, Jesus is the one who sustains community. The church, the body of Christ, is his community. Biblical community exists because Jesus has already created it. And when you and I accept Jesus' invitation to come and to be his disciples, we are automatically and instantaneously a part of his community. It's not. Blind men would suggest a two-step process. It's not that on this hand we become a disciple of Jesus Christ and then we decide whether or not we want to be part of the family of God or of his community. No, if you're a follower of Jesus... You are a member of his community. So we don't get to define. We don't get to set the conditions. We don't get to set the parameters. We don't get to break community. But sadly, we often tend to ignore it or compromise it or frustrate it or misrepresent it. And we think we can step out of it if we don't really like what it, what it looks like. And every time we do, Satan gains a little victory. And as the scripture notes, God our Father is grieved because God takes the unity of those who say they're following his son, Jesus Christ, very, very seriously. In his book, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer reminds us that in a biblical community, that is, in Christ's community, as Christians, we don't relate horizontally, directly to one another in Jesus Christ. We relate vertically to Jesus and then back vertically to a fellow believer. We're in community together. We belong to each other because we belong to Christ. So Jesus prays. Here is this prayer for us in John 17. And Jesus prays that we, his disciples and all believers, will be one like Jesus and his Father are one. 
It's important for us to realize that Jesus doesn't pray this prayer alone or in a vacuum. Jesus prays this prayer surrounded by his 12 disciples. And if you note the context, the air is thick with political and personal agendas. Simon, not Simon Peter, but Simon the Zealot is a zealot. I mean, he is part of a group of Jews who were out there terrorizing and killing Romans. On the other hand, Matthew is a tax collector. He's actually working for the Romans in the same group. Jesus prays this prayer after they have entered the room in order to celebrate the Passover, what we know as the Last Supper, with proud, proud hearts and dirty feet. Each one walked by the pitcher of water. Each one walked by the basin. Each one walked by the towel. Each one said, it's not my job. It's not my turn. I'm not doing it. Jesus prays this prayer after the disciples had argued all night with each other about who would be the greatest in the kingdom, his kingdom. Jesus prays this prayer after Judas has met with the religious leaders, putting together a plot to betray Jesus. It's important for us to note that Jesus is not praying this prayer in a perfect world. He is surrounded by people, his disciples, other believers, who think that their opinions and their perspectives and that the way they see things are spiritually and intellectually superior to the way other people see things. Only Jesus would call this group of independent misfits a community, but he does. This prayer, offered just moments before his betrayal, provides us with a clear and deep view into Jesus' heart, to what's important to him. And after briefly praying for what he is about to face, he spends most of this chapter praying for his disciples, then and now, for them and for us. It's significant to note that Jesus doesn't pray that his disciples will be taken out of or escape this world that they'll be able to avoid persecution and suffering or even discomfort, or that life will go their way and they'll be comfortable and it will be easy and wonderful. I'm, I'm thinking those are the kinds of things I'd pray for in that moment. Jesus doesn't. Instead, Jesus prays for the unity of his disciples. It's the focus of his last scripturally recorded prayer. After first praying that prayer for his current disciples, Jesus then prays essentially the very same prayer for future disciples, for you and for me. May they be one, Father, he prays, just as you and I are one, verse 21. So please understand, this is not a prayer for unanimity. Jesus is not praying that everyone who follows him will all look alike, that they will all talk alike, that they will all think alike, and that they will all do the same things together. This is a prayer that we might all look like Jesus, that we might think like Jesus, that we might even talk like Jesus and act like him. This is a prayer that calls believers to reflect the unity of the Father and the Son in their experience together. 
A unity based on love and grace and sacrifice and mutual submission to the mission of God, to the Missio Dei. This unity supersedes differences of gender and ethnicity and age and economics. This unity supersedes the differences we might experience with worship style or serving priorities or organizational decisions or or even fine points of doctrine. This unity is essential for discerning and obeying God's sovereign will. Because all discernment, you see, is a corporate discipline. All discernment is done in community. But it is also the catalyst for embracing Christ's mission. Listen to what Jesus prays. May they all be one so that the world out there may believe that you and no one else sent me and no one else to build and expand our church and your kingdom. Jesus knows where people major in minors and are easily distracted by the urgent rather than the important, that seeking to discover and obey God's will is often pushed off to the side. Jesus knows that where there are divisions and exclusiveness and competitions and unrest and self-centeredness and disunity, the cause of Christ is hindered and tarnished. Jesus knows that where animosity and deep-seated disagreements that growth in and of the body of Christ will be severely hampered. Jesus knows that where there is visible disunity, it will be extremely difficult to convince the world of the lordship of our Jesus Christ. And so Jesus prays. He prays that all of his disciples will be keepers and promoters of the unity of the body of Christ. The same kind of unity that the Father and the Son experience all the time. So the New Testament church was fully devoted to unity. Check out Acts 2. Started verse 46. The early church was deeply committed to oneness, to togetherness, to harmony, and to loyalty to Christ's mission. There was a refusal in the early church to tolerate unresolved conflict or to allow bitterness or resentment to take root or to allow attacks on each other or fellow Christ followers. Did they experience perfect unity? <laughs> no, not by any means. But they sought it. They were fully devoted, the scripture says. They longed for it with all their heart. You see, Jesus is very passionate about the unity of his church. Unity is Christ's vision for his church and his kingdom. And since God created us as human beings in his own image, it is possible for us to know and to show that oneness as God in Trinity models it for us. Oneness is the mark of God's character. Unfortunately, we as human beings, well, we tend to fight often like little kids. Mine is one word that comes to mind. Or 
I want my way. I'm taking my ball and I'm going home. Our friendly battles reflect poorly on God's Trinitarian essence and on his oneness. See, God is jealous about the unity of his church because his son died for this church. He purchased his church at an incredible price, the blood of his one and only son. So Paul writes, he himself is our peace. He has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I appeal to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you may agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, that you may be perfectly united in mind and in thought. In 2 Corinthians, he repeats it. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. He encouraged one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. In Ephesians, he says, make every effort. That is, don't ever give up to keeping the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Are you keeping the main one? The main one? Are you fully devoted to keeping and promoting the oneness in the body of Christ? Community. Literally meaning a oneness together with. Doesn't just happen by accident. Community. Requires intentionality and hard work and discipline. Imagine Jesus in his day asking a Jew to embrace a Roman Gentile or putting a zealot in the same small group as a tax collector or having a Pharisee invite a sinner over for dinner. Imagine a Republican and a Democrat sitting side by side in worship together or having a U of M fan and a state fan going on a mission trip together, or having a business owner serve communion to a street person. Jesus not only imagined it, he invites us to do it. Such things would seldom happen in Jesus' day. And the truth is they don't happen very much in our day either. But because Jesus came, and God designed his church and the followers who comprise it to be radically different than all of the society and culture around us. He calls us as his church to be one in the midst of the polarized and the polarizing world we live in. So that, so that the world can see and the world can believe that Jesus was sent by God. That he came into this world in order to save it. Is there any unresolved conflict between you and someone else? Anyone else? Anyone in this church? Anyone in your life? Have you spoken negatively about a fellow believer? Have you consciously or unconsciously sown a seed of dissension? 
Has a critical spirit ever interrupted your graciousness? Do you make mountains out of mohills? Do you refuse to forgive? Do you hold a grudge? Disunity is a cancer in the body of Christ. It's a blight that not only threatens our ability to have unity, but it also threatens the very mission of God in this world. Unity is something that Jesus is, was, and still is very passionate about. Woe to the one who sows dissension in the body of Jesus Christ. As believers, there is always work for us to do in this area. We need to pray. We need to ask for forgiveness. We need to be forgiving. We need to walk the extra mile. We need to show grace. We need to apologize frequently. We need to ask for help. We need to make the call or pay the visit or write the note. We need to do whatever it takes. See, God expects the unity that the Father and Son have modeled for us to be among the leadership of the church, but also practiced by every single believer. God wants Christ to make such a difference in our life and in how we live out our lives that the world is going to notice because something is different than what they've ever experienced. Biblical unity requires a supernatural intervention to produce supernatural reality that requires a supernatural explanation. And only God can do that. But God just longs to do it through us. So in Luke chapter 24, Luke tells us the story of two disciples that are walking home to Emmaus. They're grieving the worst weekend that they have ever experienced, and they are convinced that their long-awaited Messiah has been crucified to death. Some recall that he said that there was something about rising. In fact, some unreliable witnesses have even gone to the tomb and said he is missing this morning. So they lived in limbo. They lived in liminal space. They were hopeful, but discouraged and disappointed. But they walked together. Their conversation was hard. And then Jesus joins them. And Jesus asks them, what are you talking about? And then he listens to their story. Jesus then speaks out of the scripture. He explains what God's will is and about God's mission. And he puts things into perspective for them when he says, I wish you could understand. It was all it was meant to be. When they arrived in Emmaus, they invited Jesus to say, you see, their experience of community community formed around Jesus and around his word was so powerful and so all-consuming. They didn't want to let it go. 
And then in the sharing of an ordinary meal and the extraordinary blessing of the bread, their eyes were opened and they saw and they saw Jesus. And when he disappeared, they ran out of their home and they ran all the way back to Jerusalem to tell others what they had seen. They had seen Christ. They had shared communion and they had experienced community. Community is not primarily a social or collegial relationship. It's not a Bible study or a self-help group. Community is a place where in the midst In the midst of our discouragement and our sufferings and our betrayals and our dashed dreams, we can find grace and forgiveness and love and hope and encouragement. Community is a place to belong, where we can see Jesus clearly reflected in the faces and in the hearts and in the lives of those that we're there with. Our world desperately needs a Christ-centered community. A community where we walk together, listening to one another and learning from Jesus and from his word and from his spirit about God's will for our life. A community where we can see, where we can be human. That is, we can admit our struggles and our failures. We can disclose our deepest desires. We can confess our doubts and our insecurities. And we can still belong and be welcomed. A community as eager to share its sorrows as its joys, its pains as its victories, its questions as its answers. A community marked by grace, forgiveness, and love. A community with a stranger. And remember, we were all once strangers, where the stranger is embraced and enveloped. A community where believers lift each other up in their daily prayers. A community where Jesus is confessed as Savior and proclaimed as Lord in all things. A community where we, like the men on the road to Demaeus, can celebrate when our hearts burn And our eyes are opened and we see Jesus and experience communion. Engaging in Christ's community, building and preserving the unity of the body of Christ is the spiritual discipline of highest order. It takes time and attention and stretching and sacrifice. And the truth is, as a discipline, it's hard work. But Christ says it's a top priority. It's a top priority for him, and therefore it's a top priority for his disciples, and it's a top priority for us. It was a top priority in the early church. It's a top priority in the 21st century church. So the apocryphal story of the wordite, spitite, and mudite actually ends pretty happily. You see, they, they decide to forgive one another. And they set aside their differences and they focus on what they share together in common. They had been born blind and now they see. And Jesus was the one who healed them. So they go to their friend who had been healed of leprosy. See Luke 17. 
The one who had personally gone back and thanked Jesus for the healing. And, and the four of them agree on two things. First, they agree on the identity of the one who was leading the local Bible study. And second, they agree that their paralytic neighbor will be hopeless and lost forever without Jesus and Jesus' healing. They agreed that these were the two most important things that Jesus, the one who had healed them, would have wanted them to see, to discern, and to know. And so they went and literally picked up their paralytic neighbor. They went for a walk. They ripped off this guy's roof and they lowered their neighbor down like a chandelier being lowered for a good cleaning. And he got a good cleaning and a thorough healing. And he saw Jesus. And he was welcomed into community. See, that's what happens when we as the body of Christ live together in unity. We experience community. The world is graced. God's kingdom grows. The mission of Christ takes a step forward and God is glorified. And it doesn't get any better than that. Let's pray together. Father, our prayer this morning is simply the prayer of Jesus. Father, make us one as you and the Father and the Spirit are one. Make us one so we can know your will. Make us one so we can do your will. Make us one so that the world may know that you, Father, sent your Son, our Savior Jesus, into this world, that the world might have life and have it abundantly. This is our prayer, and we offer it in Christ's name. And all God's people said, Amen.